0: I'll never, 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 no never, ever forsake that soul. The title of the message that I have this morning is Safety for Our Souls. (laughs) It's a fitting song for that. Greetings in Jesus' name. Good to see all of you that came out. And I'm assuming there's some here that might want to be here that are not able because of sickness. So uh, we thank God for health. um, We're at the verge of various sicknesses at our place, but everybody was able to come. So we're thankful for that. And also as we come together to rejoice in the Lord... We recognize that we live in a world of trouble and there's, there's much sorrow, there's much distress. And we want to remember those people that are this morning in trials of life. Because we're not home yet, but we have... Been well instructed this morning to have confidence in our God, in the Lord Jesus. Though He may not, or maybe we would say we don't sense Him right with us, maybe He's not as far away as we think. He's closer than we feel him to be when we're really distressed. We, good for us to remember that. <clears throat> good for me to remember that. Okay, this morning you can turn to 2 Timothy. And this morning I will go back to the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to, I think, his most favorite disciple, Timothy. It's definitely one of his most faithful disciples, because he wrote one place where he says, there is no one like-minded like Timothy who will do, I forget exactly how it's worded there, but he had confidence in Timothy above others. And Paul was soon ready to die, as we have seen before, and he was... In the in the mission that Paul had, he was in a project that was bigger than life. It's bigger than his life. It went beyond. It didn't stop with him. In other words, um sometimes we talk about people who act like the world couldn't function without them. Because they're so important, they're so busy, they're um so involved. Paul knew. His life was about over, and he was putting as much as he could into people who could keep on going. Continue to work after he was gone. Because he was a man with a mission on a project that was much bigger than himself. Paul had always been a man with a mission. His initial mission was to preserve and to perpetuate the Jewish faith. As far as Paul knew, it was Saul back then, as far as he knew, that was God's will. That the Jewish faith would continue on. And that God would continue to work with the Jews. And the Jews, well, they had the covenant. God had made a covenant with them, and they were required to be faithful. And and in his mind, in his understanding, that's how it was. That The Jews were committed to a covenantal relationship with God, and it goes back to Moses, and it goes back to Abraham. And it's in Romans 5, uh, no, Romans 9, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read a verse there. You know, talk about the Jews being God's chosen people. They are the Israelites to whom belongeth the adoption. The Jews had the adoption. So as Paul and, and saw in and his concept, the Jews, they had the adoption. They were God's chosen people. <clears throat> they had the glory. God revealed the glory to his people. They had the covenants. They had the giving of the law. They had the worship, the, all, the whole sacrificial system, the temple, which was originally the tabernacle, but then the temple. They had the giving of the law, and I to, had to mentioned that, and the worship. And they had the promises, <coughs> and they had the patriarchs. That's all mentioned there in, in Romans. <coughs> then along comes this new sect that is seeking to overturn everything that Paul understood about it for being God's will. And to him, that was wrong. Dead wrong. And his life was, because of his understanding, his life was completely bound up in the success of the Jewish people. I mean, it was... On his watch, nothing was going to happen to what God wanted for his people. They were a separated people from other peoples, especially those hated Gentiles. And they were to be faithful to God according to Old Testament law and practice. And so like a cancer that hates, like a parent rather, that hates the cancer that destroys the life of a child, so Paul hated anything that would destroy what he understood the Jewish people should be. And here comes this sect, this this new enemy that that taught that there's been a change, that there's been a change in covenants, that you no longer follow Moses, but you follow this other person. Someone other than Moses. So Paul on a mission, Saul on a mission was going to destroy that. And he actually, I'm going to read, you don't have to turn there, but in Acts 26, 9 to 11, as we're looking at Paul as a man with a mission, this is how he felt. As he was giving a testimony before somebody, I didn't know who it was. I verily thought with myself, Paul is saying, he's giving this testimony, that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem and in many of the saints. Did I, and many of the saints I did shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities, foreign cities, far away cities. Now, can you imagine if you were Ananias and you knew that and you knew Paul was a man with a mission and he was, and then you were told by God, now you go to, you go to Paul, you go to Saul and you pray for him. How much, I think Ananias would be in the faith chapter, don't you think so? Well, what did Ananias say? Well, he said there in Acts 9, he said in 13, and Ananias said, Lord, I have heard many, by many of this man, how much evil he had done to the saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, just go, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And here we see God's plan for Paul. He is chosen, he will go to the Gentiles, he will bear Christ's name, and he was going to suffer and in that context, let's read in Second Timothy, our scripture for this morning, verses 9 to 12. <clears throat> we'll break in here. Paul is first talking about himself and Timothy, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. But now it is made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and been persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And here we see Paul acknowledging God's plan for himself. He said, we're chosen. He said, I've been called a teacher to the Gentiles. He will bear Christ's name. And he said, I am suffering. That was God's plan for Paul. Now Paul in, in, just to put this in context, he testified there were several reasons why he, Paul thought God saved him. But he's given one reason in, uh, in First Timothy. He was saying he said uh, going his testimony he says, I was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injure, injurious. That's what he was, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief like the disciples to some degree they were ignorant but they were ignorant because of their unbelief and that's where Paul was and God had mercy on him but the point we can be sure of is this Paul did switch from the Jews to Jesus he converted from Moses the Messiah. He flipped from law to grace. He went from the old covenant to the new. You know that switch had always been in God's plan. Paul hadn't understood it, but that switch had been in God's plan, and that's, in fact, it, it was from the from the where the world began in the scripture that we read. Which was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. That switch was way, way, way done. But Paul says it is now made manifest, it is now revealed, it is now disclosed by the coming of the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus, being the mediator of the new covenant in Christ, all things passed away. So, what else happened when Jesus appeared? In our scripture text, it says that he abolished death. He abolished death and he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. See, what Paul didn't understand is that the law was a temporary injunction. It was given to preserve a people till Christ would come. That's very clearly in scripture. It was not the final solution. It was an interim plan. Like Hebrews says. In Hebrews 9.10. Talk about the whole system. Which. Stood only in meats. And drinks. And divers washing. And carnal ordinances. Imposed on them. Until the time of reformation. Once. Paul understood that. His whole life changed. When that happened, he accepted God's plan for his life. And his plan for life was to be a preacher and an apostle and a teacher to those formerly hated Gentiles. And so with the same fervor and zeal as before, he was willing to endure any suffering for the furtherance of the kingdom. None of us. I don't believe any of us have gone through such a drastic change of heart at the Apostle Paul. Not a, not such a drastic shift in our perspective. But we've all had wrong concepts, and we all had our sins, and we all had to um, come to the Lord. We had need of repentance. And we had a need of cleansing and a new heart. So we can, we can, we can understand to some degree what Paul experienced because we all had our idea of how things were to be until the Lord Jesus come and revealed himself to us personally. And then things began to clear up in the way the Lord wanted it and we began to go with his plan. Now I want to um, focus a little bit more on what Jesus did. It says that he abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I want to be both doctrinal and practical. We're reading a letter. We're reading a letter from one minister to another. And And I I struggle at times to find out how to make it practical. But I I think I will be able to do that in its proper way. But let's look at what Jesus did. He abolished death. Christ abolished death. Well, let's ask a question. Well, Death, where did it come from? You go back to the Garden of Eden, you didn't have death. Death didn't need to be abolished because it didn't exist. Of course, then, then uh, Adam sinned. Okay, let let me back up a little. Death didn't exist. What existed in death? Life existed, and immortality existed, and death did not exist. That's the garden. Then we had Adam sin, and death then began to rule. Life fled away and mortality became the normal. What was the occasion to bring death? Anybody had the occasion? What what, what brought death? One word. Sin. Sin. Sin brought death. By one man, sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So death passed on all men, for all have sinned. That's clearly there in Romans. And sin is the transgression of the law, John says. In that case, they only had one law to break, which was don't eat of that tree. That, that tree. But then, because, because of the sinful nature, man's heart began to go in all kinds of direction, and you needed more of a law to, um, to understand what God's will and perspective is. <clears throat> All has sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everyone has chosen consciously to put self first and God's will second. And that is the same as to reject God. Now, I'd like to picture or personify sin a little bit as sin is a hostile power. A hostile power is a power, is something that has power over its subjects, but does not care or love its subjects. That's what a hostile power is. It's a power that has ability to control its subjects, but it's hostile in the sense that it's not for the people, but it's against. Sin is such a power. Sin is a hostile power. Another hostile power is death. Now, death is the result of sin. They, they, they work in tandem. They work in partnership. They are in alliance with each other. And they both have a power and authority over their subjects. And they are both hostile. Both sin and death are hostile powers. Both rule over their subjects mercilessly, unlovingly. Sin and death are cruel. You know, if you want to put it in in context... Let's just imagine Germany in the 1940s. And they would come to these other countries. They were a hostile power. They were going to rule. They were going to, they were on a conquest. They were going to spread. They were going to take over. And they did for a time. And you can put the Soviet Union over most of the 20th century with their vision of spreading communism over the entire world. Very similar. They were all hostile powers. They took over sections of the world and they forced those places that they took over to comply with their desires. And there was little that the populace could do about it. And that's the situation with the powers of sin and death. They took over the world and there was little. That the subjects could do about it. God did make a way for his people to cope throughout history. He gave the sacrificial pathway that that atoned for their sin. And there was a way to walk with God. There was a pathway of light to walk on in the Old Covenant. And people did. And some did very well. But sin and death still ruled until Jesus came. And that's what he says. He abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. How did he abolish death? Well, the first thing he did is he abolished death first by exposing the root of death, which is sin. You know what Jesus did when he came? He came preaching the kingdom of God, right? He came preaching the kingdom of God is at hand, and then he began teaching what that kingdom is. And he made it clear, the narrow way that follows my teachings leads to life. He said that there's two ways. There's a narrow gate. There's a wide way. He said the narrow gate of my teaching, it leads to life. So he, he began to abolish death by first, by first teaching and preaching the kingdom of God and, 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 uh, and, his way, and the way. So in his most complete sermon, which John is is in Luke there some, he, he, he pushes us back to the beginning. He pushes the reset button, so to speak, and resets us back before the law, before there were any Jews. He takes us back to the original plan. And he teaches, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit. You don't need to swear to convince people you're telling the truth. You can abstain from adultery, even in your heart. You do not perpetuate violence by striking back. You give and you share and you lend to people out of compassion, not to be seen of others. And as you congregate with the people who do the same, you become a city that's on a hill, a light to the world, a testimony of God's power in people's lives. There, this is the narrow way that leads to life. These are some of the practical ways in which we refuse sin. But what good is that? Is sin is still a hostile power? What good does it do for Jesus to come to teach? Do this. And 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 here in the old covenant they were failing, and then he comes and raises the standard. What good does that do if sin is still a hostile power? Good question. So he began to abolish death. The first thing he did was raised the standard but then he abolished death also by offering himself as the alternative to sin if sin is a hostile power Christ is a friendly power we all agree with that if being under the power of sin leads to death being under the power of Christ leads to life. In fact, these two realities are the only two ways. Adam was the first man, and because of Adam, we all came under the bondage of sin. Christ is the second Adam, and as a real flesh and blood man, he faced the same temptations we did. But he did not fail. He did not sin. The devil came like he did in the garden and tempted Adam and Eve. The devil came to the Lord Jesus and gave him the whole gamut. Every possible trick that he could think of, he gave to Jesus. He he tempted him with lust and with with uh, possession, the temptation for possession and position. And he tried it all. And Jesus passed all of those tests. Finally, the devil decided to get rid of him. And he moved people, moved in people to get him killed. And Jesus died. And here was the... According to the plan, which the devil didn't know, the perfect Lamb of God died, according to prophecy and according to plan. But, you know, death could not hold the Lord Jesus. Sin never had any authority over the Lord Jesus, and so death had no authority over the Lord Jesus either. The two are in alliance. One gets its power from the other. And since Christ was never under the power or the control of sin, neither was he kept under the power and control of death. And so Christ rose. Rose from the grave, totally, totally, totally victorious. There is no way the devil is going to tempt him. Sin and death, through the Lord Jesus Christ, sin and death has been defeated. And that is our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You know, and we could go right down that line and and expound on it a lot more, but I I won't do that this morning. We'll go on with our lesson text. But I just want to bring out that the hostile power has been destroyed. The Lord Jesus Christ brought to, he abolished death by his perfect life. And, and we can partake of that as we come into the Lord Jesus and, and, and enter in, into his life with, uh, with our faith and repentance. Then Paul writes, "Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. Paul, Paul went from where he was, the other two was he was putting himself and Timothy together. He said, we and us, but now he says, I am appointed. He's appointed a preacher, a herod, a, a proclaimer, an instructor. I think I have some, um, I have this out of line. I, I should have had this other comment first before I wrote about this uh, appointed preacher, but I want to bring this one in just going back before. Because just as we became par- partakers of Adam's nature, we became partakers of Adam's nature by default. We were, we were we born into it, it's, it's a default situation. We are all children of Adam. Now we are invited, or rather commanded, to partake of Christ's nature. Just as we got everything that Adam won for us, so we get everything that Christ won for us. As we get Adam's negative things, we get Christ's positive things. So that's, that's the, that's the gospel. That's the gospel in a nutshell. <laughs> what we got in Adam, Separated from God, under sin, we get in Christ, reunited to Christ, reunited to God, and and have power over, over sin. Okay, and Paul says, that very thing, that gospel, that thing there that, that I just said, that gospel in a nutshell, I'm appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher to the Gentiles. Everything, everything is there. That's the victory that Jesus Christ won for all humanity. The Holy Spirit, which was sent after Jesus' ascension to the Father, is given to all who repent and believe. And there is a new race of humanity that emerge, And these new people are called God's people. No one has the right to complain to God or blame him for being held in sin. Through the gospel, we can escape through the barbed wire. We can go past the border guards that are guarding the border to keep us in bondage, in that hostile power. We can flee out of our oppressive country. We can cross the border and we can emerge on the other side as a free person. We will need a guide. Someone who's gone before. Someone who knows how to do that. Who knows the way. And um, I think of the disciples this morning. We must come to him and enlist his help and follow his direction precisely. liberty. There are, however, some differences from the Garden of Eden. We can't go to the Garden because we live in a fallen world. We are restored, and we are reinstated, and we are reunited to God. Our sins are forgiven. Our hearts have been changed and are cleansed and washed, and we have a relationship with the God of heaven. We have acceptance and assurance and the spirit, but we live in a hostile world, no longer under the hostility of sin per se, but we are in a hostile world. And God calls his people, that's us, to live victoriously and righteously in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. So Paul is a preacher. This implies, as we already know, that not everyone knows the gospel. And then he says, for the which cause I also suffer these things. So he airs the gospel, and he's appointed a preacher, and then he suffers. That's what he's saying as we go through the text here. That means not only does not everybody know the gospel, but not everybody appreciates the gospel. Not everybody appreciates that message. There are other ideas. And then if we say this is the right way, you need to... um, First of all, you need to let go of your own works and trust in the Lord Jesus for salvation. And then you also need to walk in the Lord Jesus' way. You cannot be a Christian and disregard the Lord's teachings. You can't. Um, you can't say that all roads lead to God. There are some ways that are wrong. And for some people, that's going to mean you are wrong. Some people are not going to like that. Well, that, that happened here. Back in, the, back in the first century there, first you had the Jews that didn't appreciate it, and then you had the, um, the, the Greeks, the heathens, the Romans, wherever Paul was at, and they had their idols and they had their systems, and they didn't appreciate it either. So where was Paul at? He was in prison. He was suffering. And he's soon going to be killed. He's certain of that. Someone could come to Paul and say, Okay, mister. You talk about the glories of heaven. You talk about victory. You talk about death being abolished. You talk about life and immortality. And I come to visit you, and what do I see? I don't see any of it. This rat-infested cell, this damp dungeon that you're in. Someone could come to Paul and say, you are a loser. Nothing of what you said and boasted about and proclaimed about is here you talk about freedom but you're bound with a chain you wax eloquent about the goodness and the power of God where is God's power right now and the question comes to us did you ever feel that way you have committed yourself to the Lord you have sacrificed time, money. You sacrificed opportunities to serve the king. You've chosen the way less traveled. you chosen the difficult way, and what did you get? You got trouble, hardship, loss, trial, and tears. Drudgery, a loss of dreams. Nothing tangible to show for it. You know, Paul had that in Second Timothy. Well, just, just just down a few verses from where we're at, he said, "This thou knowest." He's talking to Timothy that all they that which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom are Philelus and Hermogenes. He was forsaken by those in Asia. They turned away from Paul. And in 2 Timothy, further down in chapter 4, verse 16, At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray, God, that it may not be laid to their charge. If we would go reading on, we would say, but the Lord stood with me. <clears throat> Paul said, I am suffering, and I look like a failure. But you know what he says next? It's just amazing. You you need to read the scripture and be inspired. He said, I'm not ashamed. I Far from it For I know the one whom I trust, and because I know him, I know He keeps His promises. I know He's strong and powerful. I know He is able He is able to keep Everything, he's able to guard everything I've given to him. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. When you put money in the bank, you're putting, you're, you're, you're giving them a part of your life. It's okay to talk about money that way. That money represents your time and your talents and your sweat. So when you give money uh, to an institution, you are entrusting them with a part of your life. And I don't think you would give money to them if you wouldn't think they could keep it because when you want that money you want to be able to go there and get it out with hopefully some increase they have guarded it and they guarded it well you know there's many cases where which people entrusted their life savings to individuals who were not trustworthy some of these cases were scoundrels who just operated ponzi schemes took people's money and just kept on taking more money in and paying out their friends and living high. That's a deliberate fraud. Then there's other cases where individuals are simply careless or or inept and don't properly invest the money and lose most of it. I remember reading just a few years ago about a team, team Mennonite man that lost millions of dollars for numerous individuals, and uh, he got in trouble with the government and all that. That's I guess that's why it got in the news. But because he was a team Mennonite, he didn't have his own automobile. So he got a driver to drive him to all his places. And the man, the driver, gave a little bit of a testimony of how the man acted. He said, yeah, he didn't eat at restaurants. He was he was there over there as he was driving them to his place, over there eating watermelon out of a." Plastic container, cut up watermelon, you know, he, doesn't, he wasn't living it up, but he was inept. He was, he was careless. He was not competent to take people's money and invest it wisely. Many a widow has lost her entire retirement savings on such failures and other people. They entrusted their money to unreliable people and they have reaped the consequences Now, you and I have a treasure. The Lord Jesus says, if you gain the whole world and you lose your own soul, what does it benefit? That soul of yours is your treasure. That soul represents everything of you. And you do want to put your soul at a place where it can be safeguarded. First of all, we can't keep our soul. There are dangers this is this is out of a mac McLaren commentary. And he had a commentary on this, and I'd just like to read part of it. He said, you can't keep that. There are dangers all around us. We are like men traveling through a land full of pickpockets and highwaymen. We are laden, he talked about us, laden with gold and precious stones. And then we're surrounded with these enemies that want to take it from us. On every side, there are enemies that seek to rob us of what our true treasure is, our own souls. We cannot keep ourselves. Slippery paths and weak feet are bad companions. The fodder in our heart and the fiery sparks of temptation that are flying around about are sure to come together and make a blaze. We will certainly come to ruin if we seek to get through life, to do its work, to face its difficulty, to cope with its struggle, to master its temptation in our own poor, puny strength so we must look for trusty hands and lodge our treasure there where it is safe and of course that's describing um a person that is under the hostile power of sin and yet trying to manage without going into the lord jesus christ Humble dependence upon God is what we what we need in our relationship in the person of his dear son. Here's um here's a poem that I found. Myself I cannot save, myself I cannot keep. But strength in thee I surely have, whose eyelids never sleep. Security. Security. With that constant posture of heart, I can entrust my life to him. And with that kind of place and relationship, I can miss what people call the good life. I can live with less income. I can live with less pleasures. I can live with less possessions. I can live with fewer trips. I can take a back seat and miss public recognition and labor in a secluded place. I can say no to my flesh. No to my carnal dreams and desires. No to the easy way out, either by lying or stealing or whether it's divorce or some other disobedience. I can love my brother even when it costs me. I can forgive him and release him for the wrongs done to me. Yeah, take that backpack off. I do not have to understand why this is happening to me or why they did that to me. I can do that. I can bear with purpose and resolve, sometimes with joy and sometimes with sorrow and loss. I can do all that because I am entrusting my life to the Lord and he will keep everything intact that I give to him. He is able to guard it, and he is able to increase it, and he will. He will pay eternal dividends. Paul had entrusted his entire life to the Jewish Messiah, the Lord Jesus, the one who had appeared to him in the road to Damascus maybe probably 30 years before. His complete life saving, so to speak, was invested in that account. His life is nearly over, and now here as he looks back over life and sees all the experiences that he went through, his experiences have just confirmed over and over that the Lord is faithful. Could have he said this statement at the beginning of his life, I am persuaded that he is able Did did he have that at the beginning? I don't know. But at the end, he did. The, The axe that took off his head is within his mind. He understands his life is nearly over. But as he looks back, he is not ashamed. And he's fully confident in his God. He's not dissatisfied, not dissatisfied rather, with how life has turned out for him. Why not? He doesn't seem to have regrets. He's going to lose his life early, and he's suffering, and some people are turning away from him. But he knows that he followed the Lord Jesus, and he does not have regrets, and he has confidence. He is, in fact, he is at rest. What can we learn from that? Here again from McLaren's expository. You must have Paul's faith if you are going to have Paul's serenity. For even though my faith brought me nothing from God, the very fact that I have rolled my care off my shoulders onto his, though I made a mistake in doing it, would bring me tranquility as long as I believed that the burden was on his shoulders and not on mine. Trust is always quiet when I can say I'm not the master of this caravan and it's no part of my business to settle the route. I had no responsibility for providing food or watching or anything else. All my business is to obey orders and to take the step nearest me and wait for the light. And then I can be quiet, whatever comes. And you know that is so true. You ever notice the difference between when you're in charge of an activity or a meeting or anything versus when you're just there to be told what to do? (laughs) What the difference is? Paul's? I'm not a master of this caravan. It's not my business to know where to go next. It's just my business to obey. And there's rest. And if I have cast my burden on the Lord, I am not not delivered from responsibility, but I am delivered from harassment. I still have tasks and duties, but they are all different when I think of them as his appointing. I still have difficulties and dangers, but I can meet them all with a new peacefulness. If I say God is master here and I am in his hands and he will do whatever he likes of me. With me. By the thing, how different the disciples would have been on that boat if they would have had that kind of faith. God is master here. I'm in his hands, and he will do what he likes with me. They would have been totally, totally different. But, you know, it's the same way with us. It is. This, that is not the abnegation of will. It is the vitalization of will. And no man is ever so strong as the man who feels it is God's business to take care of me and it is my business to do what he tells me. Wow. That, my dear friends, is the only armor that will resist the cuts and the blows that are be sure to be aimed at you. What sort of armor do you wear? Is it a pasteboard painted to look like steel, like the breastplates and helmets of actors on the stage in a theater? A great, great deal of our armor is, is like that. Get rid of all that make-believe and put on the breastplate of righteousness and for a helmet the hope of salvation. And above all, take the shield of faith and trust in the Lord, whatever be tied, and you will stand against all assaults. Paul's faith is the only recipe for securing Paul's serenity. The question for all of us is, do we have the right to say, I have committed myself to him? Do you have the right to say that? If you have not, you have missed the blessedness of life and will never carry your treasure safely through the hordes of robbers that lurk upon the road. But someday you will be found lying there, found there lying beggar, bleeding, and bruised. May it be that you are found there before the end by the merciful Samaritan who alone can bind you up and lead you to safety. I have committed myself to him. For I know, this is Paul's testimony, for I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep, to guard that which I have committed Against that day. And you know, when you think of the, the last verse here, against that day, that's the day of judgment. That day when, when all men will stand before the judgment bar of an all-knowing uh, all an all-wise and a, and a completely honest and just judge to receive the deeds done in the body. And Paul knew that, but he was fully convinced that the Lord is going to keep him. Even in the judgment, he had no fear. He had rest because he was trusting in the Lord Jesus. He was walking with him. He was walking in obedience to him. I know that he will keep this poor soul of mine against that day. So, just a little bit of re, of a overview here of the message here. Sin is a hostile power, and death is its result. Christ is a friendly power, and life is the result. He invites us from sin to himself, from death to life. Christ is able to guard everything we commit to him. We can have serenity in our submission and obedience to him. He will ultimately keep our souls secure in the judgment. And that is um, is the blessing. Let's say that is actually, <laughs> that's actually the gospel again in a nutshell. <laughs> The gospel which the Lord Jesus Christ came to offer and give, the gospel which the Paul was given to preach and to teach and to to give. So if you can, why don't we just kneel for prayer? Lord, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the testimony of Apostle Paul. Thankful for his example. And we thankful, Lord, for your for giving us that life and light and grace and offering to us that way. Lord, we as we as we recognize, we look at and we look at our own lives, we recognize, Lord, that we do have needs and we do have areas where we can grow, but also, Lord, we're trusting you in that as well. that you in your mercy and in your grace. You will not only give us room to grow, but you will also bring discipline in our lives because you care for us, Lord, because you are a friendly power, because, Lord, you will provide the means and you will provide the opportunities for us to prosper and to grow in you. We Thank you, Lord, that we can entrust our lives to you. We thank you, Lord, that we do not need to uh, be fretful and worrying but we can roll our cares on you and that you are able to bear them. Your shoulders are big, they're broad, you're, you're wise, you're knowing, you're powerful. And, Lord, then we ask you to help us to do your will, to do your bidding, to be obedient to your prompting, to do what we know is right, and then to help us to grow in our understanding and knowledge of you. Pray for each one of us here, Lord. I pray, Lord, this message may be an encouragement, and may it be a blessing, and may it be able to inspire us in the coming weeks. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.